The North Carolina Healthcare Association is a proud sponsor of the Do Politics Better podcast. The association is a united voice for hospitals, health systems, and care providers to ensure they can offer high quality, lower cost care to all North Carolinians. Visit nchealthcare.org to learn more about how hospitals and health systems are working to make healthcare easier, more convenient, and with better outcomes. It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Just a couple days now until Christmas Day. This is our year-end podcast, and I have a special guest host, Senator Jim Perry. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. Got the B team to close out the year. (laughs) It hasn't been the most exciting week in North Carolina politics. Not a lot of news. Filing registration ended last Friday at noon, so we know our slate of candidates. It seems like folks are getting ready for the holidays, and I want to get into what we think is going to shape up in the General Assembly, but First, Senator, we did have some news this week on the legal side that the NAACP has filed a lawsuit against the General Assembly's MAPS. What's your reaction to this lawsuit? I read over it, and it uh, seems to be very comprehensive. You know, it it touches on the uh, congressional districts as well as uh, state Senate and state House and uh, there, you know, there is no uh, request for an injunction in there. This would be about redrawing for uh, 2026, which, okay. you know, I, I guess it makes sense to redraw every two years. It seems to be about <laughs> you know what's been going on the last decade anyway. But uh, very, very comprehensive lawsuit. Uh, let's get into the 2024 election. Let's focus on the General Assembly for a while. We had some news that uh, Democratic State Senator Mary Wills Bodie who I said last week that I thought she was running for treasurer. Most of us thought she was running for treasurer. Then we got the news Friday at noon of last week that she hadn't filed for anything, and she was getting out of politics. Yeah, that was a a bit of surprise. I I heard a little rhubarb earlier in the week. Um, You know, she's a very uh, talented individual, talented lawmaker, uh, very good candidate, strong fundraiser. I understand that she had some interest in – potentially looking into a, another office. And I'm just, um, you know, shocked to see that not materialize. No challenger we noticed on Friday for uh, Senate pro tem Phil Berger. There was a rumor out there that Sheriff Sam Page, Rockingham County, you know, he was looking at the race. There was a poll out there. The News and Observer, Daniel Battaglia, wrote that story. But at the end, he filed for lieutenant governor. Along yeah. with uh, about 12 other people. <laughs> right, right. It seems to be a, a big slate there. Yeah, you know, that, that whole situation has been uh, interesting. Uh, we think, you know, first of all, anyone's in charge. There's always someone who uh, is critical or doesn't like something they do. But um, And that's just the way the world is. But if you look back over Senator Berger's career here, and let's say he's taken – a thousand votes or, you know, move forward with a thousand issues. My guess is the people in that district probably agree or like a 950 of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, a lot of times in politics, it's the, the most recent or, or hottest issue um, that folks get motivated about. Senator, you were in the news on Friday as well. You released a press statement that afternoon. Uh, your local paper covered the story that you decided to not file for re-election. This sent uh, shockwaves through the NC poll world. Do you want to talk about that? Uh, not not really, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm working on my petition to join the ranks seeking the office of lieutenant governor. So, uh, <laughs> no, you know, it's... Um, when I came up here, let me just say, I, in my mind, I always thought that maybe I'd give it up to a, a decade. I think that uh, the idea of term limits, whether it be at Congress or here at the state level, I, I just think it's a good thing, right? New new thoughts, new ideas. And given a decade of your life is, you know, just seems like 
a lot. Mm-hmm. Especially you, you think about how long these these sessions last and, and what it really takes, because it's not just about session or, or filing bills. It's, it's fundraising all the time. It's it's constituents calling, you know, a Senate district is two and a half times the size of a, a house district, mm-hmm. two and a half times the constituents. Same amount of staff. I've had different thoughts over time. You know, I always hear a lot of, a lot of great rumors about me and, and what I what I aspired to be or what I what I wanted. Um, but to anyone who ever asked me, I always said, you know, I, I just want to be uh, relevant. And I'll, I'll say that I have seen the General Assembly, in, in, in my opinion, um, take the souls of some who have served. Um, and it... it you know, I've seen them have the inability to to walk away, whether it be in the past or or today. You know, I know a lot struggle with it, and there was a few days that I, I had some decision making. But it, so here's a little more background. I think some things I've just said what I'm willing to say about them. But uh, over a two week period, um, my family went through a lot of different issues, and my my wife's family lives in Northern Virginia. And uh, her parents were both in their 80s, and they got they got COVID, and and she needed to go up help family care for them. Her brother's kind of the primary caregiver, and uh, he got COVID too. So mm-hmm. you know they they needed some help. And during that time, um, my mom probably had the worst three or four day run that she's had in her journey with dementia. It became evident and that it, it is time for her to. Uh, be with us or in a facility while my mom still knows me and, and recognizes me. Um, I want her to be with us. You know, I grew up without a dad. She, she's all I've ever had. And, um, I just think, well, I, I know that that's where my time needs to be spent during that same time period. We get some, uh, additional health news about a, a family member that, um, you know, we're going to have an appointment to talk about, the following week, which would have been this past week. That same week, I go quail hunting and get shot. <laughs> and it's, uh, you know, we're, we're dealing with that and juggling those things. And the, um, the, the reality hit during that time frame of, of where we are in our season of life and what needs our family is going to have coming up. And I needed to make sure that my priorities were right. And uh, did I mention I got shot? Uh, <laughs> Are you doing okay, by yeah, the way? Yeah, well, uh, you you know, look great. For, for the record, if anyone ever asks you, it hurts like hell to be shot, uh-huh. just just so uh-huh. you know. Bird shot, right? Yeah, it was, it was bird shot. And, uh, you know, the, the protocol is now that they, they actually leave it in unless it's in a, a tough area. We're still looking at some in my hand, but, man, I've got it in my upper thigh, my hand, my forearm, my upper arm. I've got uh, one in my neck. And, uh, you know, when you, when you think about afterwards what happens if that had hit my carotid artery mm-hmm. or, you know, hit me in my face, um, it really makes you take stock of where you are today and what your priorities are. And uh, I, I had clarity on, on where I, I needed to be. We, we spent a little time talking to talking to family and uh, – reached a decision at the end of the week and gave Senator Berger a call and um, our caucus folks and let them know what my plans were. I went back on Sunday and listened to the podcast we did. One of the most meaningful podcasts we did was with you, Father's Day 2022. We did a Father's Day segment with you, even though you didn't grow up with a father. And and, and we wanted to point out the, the important role your mother played in playing in in many ways, that fatherly role, along with folks in your community that you talked about. But in that podcast, it was noticeable. You did talk about how much growing up the way you did, not only without a father, but also in pretty hard economic times, that family meant everything to you. And in the podcast, you talked about how much time you spent away as you were building your business, that you spent so many weeks in hotel rooms, missing birthdays, and your wife really had to pick up the slack back home. I imagine the length of session has got to be a factor. I mean, you know, session does seem to last forever at times, regardless of the reason. But, the, you know, there's a huge time commitment in fundraising and visiting constituents in the district and attending meetings. And, uh, you know, invariably someone calls in the middle of dinner and they say, hey, I, I don't want to interrupt, uh, but 
you know, and you just five minutes, coffee. five minutes. Yeah, that's all I yeah. need. Like a lobbyist, you know, during the year, <laughs> the biggest lie ever told. It, it's a, if you want to be effective and do this right, it's like anything else in life. You, you can't just stick your toe in, you know, if you just want to wear a lapel pin and have a title, you can get by pretty easily. But if you want to get to know people and how things work and how our government functions and how you might be able to move those levers a little, uh, it does require commitment because none of us come up here with that knowledge. So you've got to gain it somewhere. And uh, I've got this just terrible and wonderful personality trait in that I, I have to go all in. I don't like not being all in. I, I, I like the confidence that you get from, you know, knowing what you're doing and being prepared and having the time to do the, the research. And, um, you know, I, I need to be all in um, with my family at this season of, of life that we're in. The, the biggest struggle for me is related to some of the relationships that I have up here and people I really, I really care about. You know, I've got some uh, folks I serve with that, um, really good friends and I, I don't want to feel like I've I've let them down and I I do I do feel that way but um, you know I, I know for um, my mom and and my my family uh, that this is the right thing for um, for me to do we saw the outpouring of appreciation on social media. It went beyond your caucus members in the Republican caucus Democratic whip Senator Jay Chaudhry. Uh, wrote about you, uh, Senator Toby Fitch, former senator, uh, former Senator Kirk Devier. Can you talk about how you felt when you were seeing so many people expressing appreciation for you, but also sorrow that you were leaving? It's no secret that um, Senator Devier and I were friends when he was here and that we are friends now. We remain close and uh, good friends, and I you know, love his family. I think a lot of people don't realize the other relationships that exist because of the, the nature of this world we live in. It's not like, you know, I want to say a lot publicly about a member in the minority party because I don't want to bring them scorn, right, <laughs> by, by praising them or saying, yeah, he's a great uh, man or woman or, you know, really good person. I, I don't want to put a target on their back, but, uh, you know, I, I do have some uh, good relationships I didn't grow up in that political environment, right? I was in the business world when I got involved with this. And that is that is one thing about this world that um, it's not my favorite because I can disagree with you on policy, but that doesn't mean I hate you. And, and I, you know, I know these, some of these folks, I know they're, they're family members, right? And um, they're good people. Right. You know, it's just like when I, I served with, with Senator Fitch, we, we had some really great conversations. Eastern North Carolina boys, right? right? We, we, uh, we had to set people straight on what real barbecue was in that chamber. Um, no, we just, you know, we, we have reasonable discussions. Now, a lot of folks in our state would think that that's impossible or that we, we shouldn't do it. And uh, those extreme voices get louder and louder. But uh, at the end of the day, we're, we're all people. You know, we, we've all got crazy family. We've got situations we're dealing with. We, um, we have victories and struggles during the day. And, uh, no, I, I appreciated the thoughts and the, and the kind words. And, uh, it was, it was a nice at a, during a tough time yeah. to, to hear from my colleagues. And I, listen, you know, that, that's what you see on social media. I, I got some phone calls from some people that, um, that I serve with and I, I haven't been able to get back to everyone yet. Some right. would, would catch me and, uh, we had some really good conversations and it was, um, Democrats, Republicans, um, you know, folks in different uh, agencies um, that I've worked with over time, and I appreciate them reaching out. It's very kind. Yeah. Well, let's uh, get back into some of the politics here. Seems to be all eyes are focused right now on Representative Trisha Cotham, at least on the Democratic side. She... <laughs> <laughs> she is public enemy number one on the Democratic side. Uh, for those of you who've been living under a rock, she switched parties back in the spring, went from Democrat to Republican, gave the General Assembly supermajorities. A lot of folks thought she might even get a primary because of that, because she's not the most conservative Republican in that House caucus. But 
it's evident she does not have a primary, so she's going to be able to save some money. Meanwhile, we have two Democrats who are duking it out to take her on. I know she's not in your chamber. I know you pay attention to the House side, mm-hmm. as we all do. But uh, what's your thoughts on Representative Cotham and how that's going to play out in this election? Uh, first of all, I think the whole public enemy, number one thing, is way overblown. Yeah. I think that comes from those of us who live in political world. Uh, who either want it to be that way or they presume it to be that way because they they live on Twitter. And uh, I will not quote Dave Chappelle, but it ain't no real place. All right. Um, And it it will skew perceptions. You know, you go to the average voter out there and they don't like those extreme stances. They don't like the people being ugly to each other. And, you know, if you're on social media, you think that's that's the way humanity is today. And it's just not, not that way. Right. Um, and you say she's not the most conservative in that chamber, so you thought maybe she'd get a, a primary. The, this is what I think a lot of people really have a hard time understanding. Yeah, no, she's not the most conservative in that chamber, but the most conservative in that chamber could not win that district. That's right. And each district has a different flavor. Republicans and Democrats come in different size, shapes, colors, and flavors, <laughs> and that's how they can win their districts. So in order to be elected, her views have to represent the people in the district that she's in today. And based on the composition, that's not going to be won by anyone who's very far right or very far left. I don't think she's public enemy, number one. I I think you'll see a lot of uh, painting and accusations and finger pointing. But I actually believe that her mixture of views on different subjects pretty well represents that district. There's a thought out there that Democrats, because they want her head, they also, it seems evident, wants Representative Cecil Brockman's head. We saw what mm-hmm. happened to Senator Kirk Devier, that they're so focused on getting revenge on mm-hmm. some Democrats that they might be losing focus on the rest of the field. And some Republicans are going, yeah, just go ahead and spend all your money on Brockman and Cotham and worked with Devier, but it, it we had to spend a lot of money to take him out, and it really played in favor to Republicans. Yeah, Brockman's an interesting case because if you live in that district and you would replace a tenured lawmaker who can clearly get things done for the district, which is who he is supposed to represent, he does not represent a political party. He doesn't represent uh, any group in Raleigh or D.C. or anywhere else. Uh, And if you would replace a tenured lawmaker who uh, knows how to navigate the system and get things done, I would say that uh, you're just an ideologue and you you don't appreciate uh, representative democracy, as I I hear so much about, uh, because I I do think he represents uh, his constituents. I think you see that in, in many different areas. And so few people understand that if you've got a tenured lawmaker who can... Um, look after the needs of their district and represent the people and either advance or stop legislation, the last thing you want to do is replace them with a freshman who doesn't know where the bathroom is. I mean, that's a, that's a, not a good trade for the people. Well, Oh, and one other thing we hear so much about bipartisanship uh, all the time. People talk about bipartisanship and they, they love to scream that. And then they do things like that because someone was doing what? They were acting in a bipartisan manner on some stuff. It's just crazy. Yeah, I find that people want the other side to be bipartisan. That's that's exactly right. It's it's like sharing toys as a kid. You want the other kid to share, not not you. (laughs) Exactly right. It was a good filing period for the Democrats. The new chair, Anderson Clayton, she's been talking about this since she won the chairmanship, that she wanted to have his... Uh, Many Democrats file as possible, especially in rural areas. She wanted all 170 to have a Democrat on the ballot. She fell short of that, but it was a pretty impressive feat. She did overachieve compared to the last cycle when Democrats left a lot of seats open. What's your thoughts on Democrats' ability to get folks to run for office this year? Um, Number one, I'll say that uh, Anderson Clayton set a goal and, um, you know, she worked really hard to achieve that goal and just about nailed it. I mean, I, I'll say that she did achieve it. You know, I know she didn't quite get there. But um, anytime you, you establish a goal like that and go after it and reach it, then I'm going to say, hey, you, you did a good job in accomplishing what you wanted to accomplish. 
and I understand the goals on turnout. Um, I'll tell you that I always have mixed emotions about this when Republicans and Democrats do it because who I feel bad for um, is the candidate who doesn't really know that they're going to get shellacked. Right. And they ask their friends and family for money or they put their own money in it or they run thinking that, you know, maybe this is the year and they can do it. And then they, they sort of get demoralized. In those instances, I don't care which party does it. I'm like, man, that's terrible. You know, mm-hmm. I don't like it. But uh, I'll just say kudos to, to her for um, setting a goal and working hard and uh, coming with a different approach and, you know, just trying to uh, to do it her way. I'll, I'll, give her, I'll give her props for that. I think anyone who works that way should be commended. This week we have an interview with U.S. Senator Tom Tillis. Sky and I flew up to Washington December 13th, and we got to give some props here to Adam Webb in Senator Tillis's office, uh, Garrett Daniel, he's a listener of the podcast, he really advocated for us. Sky and I went up to D.C., and we were able to sit down with our senior senator, talk about his life, North Carolina politics, and go back a little bit in time to 2010 when Republicans took over the General Assembly. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Senator Tom Tillis, I usually say welcome to the podcast, but we came to you, so (laughs) thanks for having us. Yeah, welcome to the Republican Conference Studios. Tell us about what is your everyday here? Uh, every day is like a fingerprint for the most part. When I, when I have school children ask me what it's like being a senator, I said it's a lot like being in junior high or high school. I've got three or four classes that are scheduled today, judiciary hearing, subcommittee hearing, finance, banking, uh, veterans affairs. I wake up probably 5, 36, uh, 6 o'clock every morning, spend 30, 45 minutes reading, preparing for those classes. That's what I tell the kids. <laughs> and then I said that happens during the day up until about six or six o'clock or so at night. And then I go on the night shift, uh, which is uh, outside of here, uh, supporting other candidates or when I'm in cycle, raising money for my campaign. That's pretty much it. It's about an average 14 hour day, uh, like being in school and then uh, then going down and convincing people you're worthy of uh, being reelected. You were our Speaker of the House in North Carolina from 2011 to 2014. How would you compare the day-to-day of being Speaker of the House to being a United States Senator? Years ago, it was probably maybe nine months into the job. Roy Blunt, who was a senator from Missouri who retired last Congress, asked me that question when we were on a treadmill. He said, Tom, you were Speaker of the House and you've been in the Senate a while. How would you compare the two? I said, the way I'd compare a microwave and a crock pot. Okay. <laughs> I mean, we were cranking stuff. I mean, think about what we did. Uh-huh. Uh, think about, you know, all the, all the promises we made in 2010, I was obsessed with keeping. And we did it very, very quickly. Yeah. Up here, you may have to incubate something for two or three Congresses before right. it got it done. And the legislature, if it was consistent with the agenda that we ran on to get a majority, it was front burner. And it was a matter of weeks sometimes. I'm talking about tax reform, some of these really weighty issues that take years. Uh, It got done as a matter of weeks or a couple of months. So I do miss the microwave. And it tastes, (laughs) unlike microwaves, I think crockpots produce better food. We had some pretty good dishes coming out of that microwave in the legislature. You also had, what was it, a $2 billion deficit that you were handed when you were Speaker? Yeah, it was congratulations. You're now <laughs> sworn in as Speaker of the House, and you have six months to figure out how to find $2 billion. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, we did. Yeah. And uh, thank goodness that we had so many members that were focused on fulfilling promises. If, yeah. if you remember back at the time, I bought a 1,000 bands that said jobs, jobs, jobs. Yeah. and. We got a majority. Everybody had their own personal priorities. And I gave them that band that said jobs, jobs, jobs. And I said, every time you're tempted to come into my office and ask me to move something that's ahead of the promises we committed to fulfilling, you snap that band on your wrist 
and get focused back on what we promised the people of North Carolina. And I think that discipline produced a lot of good results. And North Carolina has benefited from it today. I mean, there's a reason why we're one of the top economic development states in the nation today after having been in the fourth quartile for over a decade. So while you represent North Carolina now, you're not from North Carolina. You're a Florida man. Tell us about how you got to North Carolina. Well, keep in mind, I've lived in nine states and two countries. So uh, Florida was uh, where I was born. Mm -hmm. Uh, Louisiana and Tennessee was where I was raised. And then after that, six other states. Uh, Florida and uh, let's see, four different elementary schools on five different occasions. I never went to the same elementary school two years in a row. Uh, three uh, junior high slash middle schools. And then when I landed in Tennessee, I did start and finish the same high school, uh, which was quite an experience because I always assumed uh, that the next year was going to be at a different school because that proved to be true until I was in eighth grade. That's difficult, but it also, folks that move around a lot learn to make friends quickly size up people quickly would you say it served you well i think so brian but but i've got three older sisters two younger brothers and Mm -hmm. we all reacted differently it was interesting just to see as we look back i mean to me it was like okay new teachers new friends get going that's the bully. I'll have to figure out how to either outrun him or hit him. But, you know, so it was, you know, sort of like like the pr- prison ground experience. You're in, you're new, you're in, you know, you move from Jacksonville, Florida, New Orleans. And I ended up being able to adapt. As a matter of fact, I think it's why moving became just a part of my life because it had been a part of my life as a child because my wife and I moved several times before we settled in North Carolina. But getting used to people, getting acquainted to people, but it does have the consequence of, I'm jealous somewhat, I think, from time to time, jealous of people that talk about that buddy of theirs that they knew in kindergarten. Hell, I don't remember the names of most people I went to high school with, uh, let alone all these other schools. I do remember the teachers. The teachers were the constant. I can can tell you Miss Leonard in fifth grade, Miss Sapp in seventh grade. Miss Wagster and my calculus teacher and everyone in between because I really developed friendships with the teachers and not so much with the kids because I just figured I was there for another couple of months and gone again. Back in the General Assembly, Senator, we have kind of a de facto trailer park caucus. That is legislators and staff who grew up in a mobile home. Mm -hmm. And we've had a couple on the podcast. They've told their story. One guest, Corey Bryson, uh, used to work for Speaker Tim Moore. He's moved on now. He's over at UNC Asheville. He said, if there's one man who's my inspiration, not only in politics, but his life story, it's Senator Tom Tillis. And he talked about how much his story resonated with your story. Can you reflect on that a little bit, that life you had growing up? I heard that, uh, I've heard a story where you were looking for money in any way as a kid and yeah, you had I a catwalk. Yeah, that, was, that was my first business. I think I did some other odd jobs, but that was the going concern. But uh, <laughs> now actually, uh, so when I was born uh, in Jacksonville, Florida, I had three older sisters and we were li- literally at that time living in a 30 foot trailer on a piece of property that uh, that was next to a place that my father, my uncles, and others were building. So they were building as a house. And, and they were first living in a garage that was built. We were living in a trailer. We moved into that house. So um, I moved out of that trailer into the house. Uh, then we ended up moving to New Orleans, sold that house, rented a house in New Orleans, uh, moved back, and that's when we moved into a trailer park. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was actually near that original house that I was in. And then we once again moved to New Orleans the next school year, so moved out of that trailer um, and then back to Jacksonville in a rental house and then ultimately up to Nashville where we once again, what I've tried to explain to everybody, I know what it means to live on the economic bubble. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if you go back and look at when I was living in a trailer and when we were blessed to at least for on two different occasions actually own the house for a brief period of time before we moved back into the trailer park, my family were an example of the very people I'm most concerned with. They live on the economic bubble. They're one tax, one regulation, one overstep of government away from having that American dream, having that house. That was me. So we move up to Nashville. We're in a house. And then about two years later, we are literally down the same road in a trailer park. Um, And then um, 
I graduated from high school uh, and moved out of home when I was 17 years old because I was expecting to go to the Air Force, uh, had an automobile accident and found myself discharged, did not pursue college in spite of the fact that I was in the top 15 out of almost 400 kids, uh, was thinking about a career in the Air Force, found myself in a warehouse, also found myself deciding I wanted to go ahead and move out of home. So, I, But what I did, I moved out of home out of that trailer that my parents lived in, uh, stayed away for about uh, six or eight months, and then I ended up renting a trailer in that same trailer park on Sugarcane Lane, uh, just off of Waikiki Boulevard. It used to be, the trailer park used to be called a uh, Hawaiian Village. It was Countryside Village by the time I got there, but they've still got Hawaiian-themed names, and it's still there to this day. That trailer park I grew up in Jacksonville and the one in Nashville, I'll go back and visit. Really? Yeah, and the reason I do it, particularly the one in Jacksonville, is to give people an idea there's a way out. Uh-huh. There is a way out. When you were a kid, did you see yourself where you are today in some way? No. Okay. No. I I I, uh, I actually didn't see myself. Uh, did I? I never had. A, I knew that someday I was probably going to serve in some capacity, and and the reason I know that is when my wife and I, Susan, of thirty-seven years, mm-hmm. on our first date, she reminds me. I told her two things, which was probably weird, but I was really, I, I really fell for her before we ever went on the first date. But over the course of about three hours, which incidentally was my second meal of the evening because I've eaten, but I saw an opportunity to ask her <laughs> out, so I ate again. Uh, so literally over the course of three hours, she reminds me two things that I said is that someday. I would probably be in public service, um, and that if I ever had a son, his name had to be Thomas R. Tillis. Okay. Well, I'm a senator, and I have a son named Thomas Ryan Tillis. So, uh, but I wasn't necessarily thinking about. I, I wanted to serve. You know, the, you know, the whole idea of where I came from. Uh, you know, the concept of you know being a U.S. senator seemed like. I, I don't think I would have ever conceived of it because it's such a stretch. But you know, here I am. But being poor and moving a lot, it can take a lot out of a kid's self-esteem, right? Maybe. I think it, it probably had the opposite effect on me. Okay. But as I said, I've had brothers and sisters react differently. Uh, differently. Uh, and a lot of that probably has to do with where I was in the order. I have three older sisters. I have two younger brothers. So I was sort of in the middle. So and to a certain extent, I had older sisters that were you know, a source of stability and comfort for me, uh, which necessarily would make me react differently than they, than say I did and and my two younger brothers. But, uh, you know, it worked out. It worked out well for all my family members, actually. It is remarkable. I was talking with my sister, one of my sisters the other day, just thinking, you know, how blessed we are with our health, uh, with our independence, all of my family members are, are able, the three older ones have been able to retire in comfort, and uh, that's, that's truly a blessing. And the odds are against a family of six that came up from where we came up, and I attribute that to two incredible parents. One, my mother, who's still alive and kicking and living independently at the age of 91. That's wow. great. Yeah. Are you still that kid who grew up that way? I mean, you're successful now beyond belief. A United States senator, former Speaker of the House, successful in business. I've known you since 2006. Hard-charging guy. But how do you think back? And it's the holiday season. so I, I mean, how do you think back of that kid you know, 30, 40 years ago. I do, I do. You know, we were talking about uh, the catwalking. I mean, that that kid was always looking for a side hustle that would make money so that I could be independent. That started when Miss Wright, my next-door neighbor in New Orleans, said, if you walk my cat, I'll give you some walking around money or I'll give you biscuits that you can bring home. Uh, it's the lawn mowing business. It was a paper route. Uh, the second time I lived in New Orleans, because I went back and forth to New Orleans, the Times pick a union, 100 papers. I threw seven days a week, including starting out at 5:30 in the morning on Sundays. It was the afternoon route for the uh, for the Jacksonville newspaper. It was getting a work permit when I was 12 years old and making my first contribution to Social Security in 1973. $33. I haven't missed a year since. It was a, f- a full-time job the entire time I was in high school, as well as the Honor Society and the Beta Club, president of the student body. I mean, it was all that stuff. Just keep on moving and uh, keep on uh, having ways to have a positive impact. My question is, what is the demand like for catwalking? <laughs> <laughs> 
It's it's actually uh, I think it's probably one of the top ten side hustles. A uh, lot of requests on Indeed. I understand. Yeah. I haven't looked at myself, but uh, it's not near as hard as you think. Uh, uh, you know, and, and you know it's really funny because at the time I'm sure I was. Uh, I am uh, violently allergic to cats. I actually like cats, but I pretend I don't like them. Which is you know if I want. That's to what they like. Oh, I know. Well, I know. I tell everybody I love cats. So I just can't eat a whole one myself. But uh, but no, I do like cats, but I'm allergic to them. Uh, but at the time. I either didn't have quite the allergy, but hey, it was literally an opportunity. I was always finding ways to make money. Right. Always. And you know why? It's because my parents were. My mom and my dad worked. They always had a side hustle. There's no question it was me observing my dad. He had this gas table that would melt lead and he would create lead sinkers and sell them. At Christmas time, my mother would create wax ornaments and sell them. I mean, she did Avon, she did Tupperware. He always had a second job. They both had two jobs, or my mom had one job, a night job. My dad had two jobs virtually uh, until he got into his 40s. So, I mean, you're constantly seeing this man be a good father and work hard and make sure he had at least one Christmas gift. Excuse me. Or new clothes. Yeah. That's the the Christmas gift of four kids right yeah yeah but i'm saying my mother my mother was obsessed with us having new clothes when we went to school we were always going to new schools but that you would see it i mean there would be a pattern like in in may or june my mom would get a job normally she'd be at home taking care of the kids when we were younger worked more when we got older but that you'd see a pattern two three months before the opening of school they were working two jobs because my mother insisted on us having new dungarees that's what we call them at the time whatever and then at christmas it was the same thing we were going to yeah. get a christmas gift and it meant my parents had to work seven days a week or two jobs that's what they did where does your mom live now she lives uh, in nashville or antioch area um after my father passed away my my brothers and sisters went together and and uh, have her a condo in uh, in nashville where she lives independently still drives herself down to her favorite store the dollar general uh-huh. uh which she says is spectacular since they recently renovated it and uh, <laughs> and i spent i go there for thanksgiving we had 30 uh extended tillis family members together we always do for thanksgiving but she is uh, she is literally only about five miles away from where that trailer park still stands the uh-huh. one that i've visit when i get there yeah what's it like visiting the trailer park you get out and talk to the kids or well and uh and in nashville not quite as much uh because it's really i mean it was not necessarily a country club it was a nice trailer park but not a country club when i lived there but now it's in a pretty rough section of town so i kind of ride around if i see somebody the one in uh the one in jacksonville is actually owned by one of my family members now and so I can go there and just talk with people, strike up a conversation. Yeah, I used to live here. What do you do? I'm a U.S. senator. And, wow. and then talk about the path out of there. But, I mean, so much of what I did when I was that age. So it was around fifth grade, I think. You know, they, and I tell people, look, just because you're here doesn't mean you have to stay here. One of the key determinants as to whether or not you stay here is whether you believe this is the end of the road for you. That's right. Or if there are other opportunities. And it takes a hell of a lot of work. Nobody's going to give it to you. If you assume they are, you're going to fail. But I like having those discussions with people. It's living proof. You are someone who knows a lot about hard work. And I want to go back to 2006. You get elected in 2006. You're a freshman, 2007, 8. Then you get into 09, 10. That's your second biennium. Yeah, that's when I was minority whip. That's right. Yeah. That's right. You yeah. were. I mean, which was an ascension that was impressive in and of itself. Republicans take over the General Assembly in 2010. I didn't have you on my uh, bingo card for being Speaker of the House 2011. You emerged from freshman two bienniums earlier to Speaker of the House. And knowing you since 2007, when I would see you in committee uh, talking your floor debate. Remember, you were back in the back. Never uh, got off the back row, actually. Uh, you, that's right. By choice. That's a good trivia question for NC Paul. Never got off the back row. Did you have, when you came in in 2007, did you have a plan in 2007? <laughs> like, I see 10 coming. I see a not. No, you're no, saying no, 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 no. You know, actually, it's it's a joke that's uh, told up here a lot, but I felt it up there. You know, I remember you get in, and I'm sure a lot of this resonates with a lot of people that get in the legislature or Congress. You get in there, and like the first six weeks, you're going, man, how did I get here? And then about two months in, you're going, man, how did these people get here? <laughs> Um, so, so, 
No, you know, I, and I do think, you know, somebody asked me, um, when when people get into office, I think one of the benefits, th- there were a lot better. I mean, keep in mind, I didn't get my four-year degree until I was 37. Right. I, I, I was a partner at Price Waterhouse before I completed my four-year degree. There are clearly people in the legislature today before me at the time that I was there better educated, smarter. I stipulate that from the get-go. But what I learned by being a management consultant was something that I now pr- think is invaluable. It's called dispute resolution, resolving dilemmas. I mean, I was literally trained in that. I've been trained in methods, methodologies around that. That's how when you go in and you're in a top-tier consulting firm like PricewaterhouseCoopers, you're sitting across the table from executives that can't get something done. You engage us to try and execute. And so often, the root cause of why they haven't succeeded on their own is they haven't resolved disputes among management in order to get it done. So I came in naturally wired, and I came in the legislature. And if you keep in mind, because we had the whole Jim Black thing, we had the (laughs) Richard Morgan thing, Mm -hmm. the Republican Party was in shambles. Mm -hmm. I spent the first two years just paying attention and looking at an organization that was dysfunctional. You guys weren't even caucusing Nobody was showing up to the caucus meeting. So the reason I ran for Minority Whip is so that I could be in a position to change some of the rules and to engage and try and get people back to the table. We had a long-standing mentality of the minority. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't, very, many of the people there had not served in the majority. So they, they thought that their circumstance was just going to be their circumstance. They couldn't look beyond it. And so I think a part of it, number one, was making sure we had the discipline and raise the money so that we could win in 2010. I quit my job in 2009 while I was waiting for a fried fish sandwich in the legislative cafeteria because my partners wanted me to come back full time. Wow. And in the length of time it took to get that fried fish sandwich, I told my partner, I'm pretty sure I could come back to Price Waterhouse or IBM. But if we focus over the next year and a half, I was convinced we'd get a majority. And I felt like it was worth doing. So I left. I, I quit probably three weeks later and spent full-time focus on what proved to be a successful uh, outcome in 2010. That was a year-and-a-half investment of time, and I think it's – it's uh, that along with just incredible people to work with in the legislature. North Carolina's benefited from, from that, that, that decision and all the great work of all the members in the legislature, the House and Senate. I agree. And I'll say this, Senator. I mean, it, it's a remarkable story. I mean, I put it on par with up there with Mark Basnight, no high, you know, high school education and rises to the top. And, but your path was so quick and yeah. it feels like your life, you do things kind of out of order, but then when you look at it, you see where it all makes sense. Yeah, like, in retrospect, it makes sense. <laughs> My staff tell me that all the time. Like you have like, the end, you do the end, and then no, they uh, no, that's actually, and I'm not kidding. I think my staff, I, I know a lot. They're very, I, I love my staff, by the way. My state staff, my uh, my DC staff, I'd put up against the most senior office. There's no question, they're some of the best in here. But there are times when uh, they just that they don't see it's hard for them to appreciate because it is that sort of thought process if i I get anything into greater than 50 percent probability it can get done then i'll use all kinds of unorthodox tactics to get it done and uh, sometimes you just have to move at the speed where the staff have to trust you most of the time they do i'm sure time from time to time they go my god the boss has gone (laughs) crazy again there's no way this is going to happen but most of the time when i commit um, it's not uh, i know a lot of people think it's by the seat of the pants but it but it's after looking you know kind of a a big picture is this achievable yes what's going to make it achievable full-throated pedal to the metal, accelerate, and uh, and then sometimes other people have to catch up. Yeah. Sure. Back us up a little bit prior to your election to the General Assembly. Let's let's just start. When you were 17, you moved out. How did you get to North Carolina? Uh, because of Lake Norman. Actually, I was just telling uh-huh. J.D. Vance's story at lunch today. I was a, at, th- at this point, I was a partner at Price Waterhouse, newly minted partner, Bank of America. Actually, at the time, Nations Bank was my client. And 
they had acquired Bank of America, and we were doing, I was one of the partners doing a lot of the, the merger integration work, a lot of IT systems, like bringing everything together and pulling out of everybody out of San Francisco, which was delightful, uh, bringing them to Charlotte. Uh, but we had a major uh, system cutover, and it was going to have to occur over the weekend. And so I had to stay in Charlotte to uh, to manage the uh, system cutover, but I had some free time on Saturday. I drove up to Lake Norman and uh, went into a community called the Peninsula. I went back home that following week, and I told my wife, sweetie, I know where we've got to live. I'm going to be the uncle with the lake house. We're going to be 20 minutes from downtown. I'm not going to have to travel as much. This is going to be great. She looked at me like he's finally going through midlife crisis. <laughs> and then I took her there. We, we happened to go to, I think, Myrtle Beach or uh, uh, could have been Hilton Head on the way back. I said, sweetie, let's just stop here. I want to I show you this place that you think I'm crazy about saying we need to move there. We moved there nine months later, 1998. Oh. Um, and now my three uh, grandchildren, my daughter, my son-in-law, my son live four miles from me. We live in the lake community. And... That's what brought me there. And let me get the story right. I remember you saying your first public service in the area, you signed up for the PTA. That is true. Well, actually, no, it's weird. I was in the town board first. Okay, because you wanted a I was on the Cornelius town track. board. I went before the town board, proposed an environmentally sustainable single-track mountain bike trail on a piece of property that was owned by the county, managed by the town. And they loved my proposal. This guy, Don Morris, who was head of Park and Rec Board, said, you know, uh, we've got an opening on the board. If you get on here, we can probably help you. Uh, long story short, I got on the board, Park and Rec Advisory Board, John Rhodes, you remember, remember? him. Okay, John Rhodes was the town commissioner at the oh, time, okay. and and I was on Park and Rec Advisory Board. I had worked with uh, Boys and Girls Club uh, to uh, implement a project for at-risk youth and seniors uh, that was going to be pennies on the dollar. It was going to be in Cornelius. Huntersville and Davidson were going to pay for this asset. John Rhodes kills it on the town council. Well, he moves on to be our state rep. I moved on to be a uh, town commissioner. I did that for two years, and then I moved to Huntersville. So like six weeks after my two-year term, I had to leave. John Rhodes is now in the, uh, in the General Assembly and uh, made me mad, so I decided to primary him yeah. because he, he just continued his behavior of, you know, trying to use – it's inconsistent with conservatism to have an at-risk seniors and youth center. I'm going, are you out of your mind when you're going to pay 10 cents on the dollar, have an impact on an at-risk community? So we had a difference of opinion. Uh, he still hates me. But um, so anyway, all that was said to say, uh, so I was on the town board. I moved to Huntersville. And then we had a crime issue at, uh, at my daughter's high school, Hopewell High School. We, we were averaging two and a quarter 911 calls a week. And we had a principal that didn't get it. And so I uh, was asked, would I be PTA president? And my goal was to get that principal replaced, and we did. And we also had a dramatic reduction in safety of the school. So I was doing that, and then I decided to run for the legislature, I think, a year later. So I teach a class. It's a nonpartisan class where young people come, and they want to learn how to get involved in politics. I use your story as an example of how you start local and it builds up to you. And I start with you in the United States and I have a great photo. And I talk about this guy was really upset about a mountain bike track. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's how it started. Well, that, you know, I tell you, and you really see it up here because you've got some of these interns and these uh, college interns or, or new uh, young staff, and, and you can tell that they are just wired yeah. to run for office. And, and I tell them all, I do coaching sessions with all 60 of my staff in the state and here, I try to do it at least once a year and sit down. I said, look, for those that are clear, I said, I know you got the bug, but get out of here, learn business, understand methods and practice, understand dispute resolution, understand compromise, make a little money. This is a very expensive hobby. Yeah. Um, and then come back because you'll be better. So start, uh, you know, you know, get some experience here, go into the private sector, volunteer on boards and commissions, get with your favorite nonprofit, understand all of those inter inter workings, and you'll be a better public servant when you decide to run. 
Tell us, after living in so many states, why North Carolina is superior? Well, you know, that's what I tell everybody. You, you, uh, you uh, traveled internationally. I mean, literally, I was uh, blessed uh, because of my job. I, I had a job uh, and, and had options in terms of income to literally live anywhere in the world. And I chose North Carolina because it's everything. I mean, my gosh, I live in Charlotte. I can be in the mountains in an hour and 45 minutes. I can be in the coast and in two or three hours. I live in a beautiful part of the state. I live on a lake that's got 520 miles of shoreline. I can do a day trip that'll take me 30 or 40 miles up beyond I-40 from where I sit at exit 25. And on I-77, I've got a, a thriving uh, urban area in Charlotte. You've got the Golden Crescent. I mean, it's got everything, which is exactly why anybody who's considering moving to North Carolina as a business, please understand, it's a great idea <laughs> um, because it's everything. And honestly, I could have uh, Tennessee uh, had an appeal. Uh, it's very similar. It's like a cute little equivalent of North Carolina, kind of like <laughs> South Carolina. It's a nice try. Yeah, but. Um, <laughs> But, I mean, it just has so much going for it. And then when you get here and you discover the university system, the community college system, just the, the philanthropic engagement, even, yeah. even in the modern age where it's more and more difficult to get younger generations to be like founding fathers of a town, it's got it all. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, and, and now the roots were already deep, and now i got a six-year-old, three-year-old, and six-month-old grandchildren. Wild horses are not going to drag me out of the state, nor do I want to go. Amazing. Which brings me to my next question. Why did you decide to make the leap to come to D.C.? Well, I'm not saying I was sane at the time <laughs> that I did it. You know, what it really came down to in 2013, I, I was not, uh, even after I became speaker, uh, I, I was already talking with firms. I term limited myself. So when I first ran... In 2006, I told everybody I'd be good for four terms, not more. You know, who knew that I was going to be speaker uh, at the end of my second term? But I was leaving, and I was already talking with businesses in uh, 2012, 2013 about direct admission partnership. There were certain firms that I could go to. Couldn't go to Price Waterhouse because of uh, uh, Golden uh, Handcuffs Agreement when we uh, sold our, our firm to IBM. But I was talking to a lot of the top tier firms. I was really wired with just getting, you know, did my eight years and go back. Uh, but we had a, a historic opportunity to get a majority in the Senate. And uh, with respect to the seven other people who ran in 2014, I judged that there was no way that they knew what it was going to take to beat an incumbent Democrat uh, in what proved to be the most expensive race. And mm -hmm. so uh, I looked around for some other people at that time. If Ruth Samuelson, rest her soul, if she decided to run, I wouldn't be in the U.S. Senate. I think we'd have gotten her elected. She chose mm -hmm. uh, not to run. But it's because I wanted to do, I wanted North Carolina to do its part uh, to get a majority. And the fact of the matter is we were a majority maker. So that's what got me here. And that's what's uh, 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 also inspired me to run again in 2020. Our politics are incredibly divided. If you had a magic wand and you could change something in politics, what would it be? Educating uh, the constituents on the role that they have to play. I had someone in a town hall ask me fundamentally the same question. And what are they asked me, what am I going to do to lower the temperatures in Washington? or in Raleigh, I said, I'm gonna turn this around and ask you what you are gonna do. Mm. What have you done? Have you called out somebody for saying false statements or being rude to someone or calling them a name? Have you written a check and done a financial contribution to somebody that you really care about that's the kind of role model you want? Have you knocked on doors? Have you made phone calls? Do you vote consistently? Mm. Do you vote in primaries? If we're gonna fix the divide here, it starts at the grassroots level. And it starts by every single person, not me, because if anything, the reason I make most people mad in the state is I treat people with respect and I try and find compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, what we have to do is recognize the founding fathers are tickled to death over what's going on right now because this institution is working. It got stress tested on January the 6th and by God, we walked back into that chamber on January the 6th and certified the elections. We have a precious gift, but it's on all of us, not just me, mm -hmm. to yeah. keep it. 
Well, Senator Tom Tillis, we appreciate everything you are doing for North Carolina, your representation of us in the United States Senate. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Merry Christmas to you, sir. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. That interview with Senator Tillis, we were so honored to be up in the Dirksen building and sitting in that Republican media room. That was incredible. But as he was talking and we were going through his life story, I couldn't help but make some connections to your life. I mean, if we go back to that podcast again, we did on Father's Day 2022, uh, a lot of similarities that you two have. Well, we, we, we both live in those trailer parks, that's for sure. <laughs> so I heard you reference the Trailer Park Caucus. Um, and for um, those who, who may not know, um, you know, when uh, Senator Sam Searcy was, was here and Senator Kurt Devier, uh, we had a little trailer park caucus with those two, Senator Sawyer, uh, Senator Vicki Sawyer from Iredale and, and uh, me. You know, we, we would talk about the, the days growing up in the, in the trailer parks and what that was like. And our, it would get on our colleagues' nerves. They would say we were trying to outpour each other. But, <laughs> you know, really we're, we're just talking about the experience. And, uh, you know, I, I do have that in common with him i think uh, they moved a lot his was multi-state mine was you know mostly in the local area like when the when the rent came due we had to move <laughs> move somewhere else but right. uh you know I, I do know what it's like and it when i hear him say that you know, he, he tried to talk to somebody about there is or there can be a, a path out i think that's something that you know I, i've um experienced and and certainly understand and you know in addition to the understanding the the trailer park life and and difficulty growing up his thoughts about conflict resolution you know mm-hmm. and, and how to handle that on moving legislation he he learned as a, a business consultant I, I learned in in business school you know the same concept so some of the same approaches on trying to figure out well what can we do yeah. you know what 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 can we move forward and it's just more of a math-based pragmatic approach versus you know, me thinking that I'm going to exert my will on you and get everything I want I, I this world doesn't work that way mm-hmm. um, and I, I think um, understanding that in the beginning and, and building some trust lets you let you move legislation so yeah I'd, I'd say those were some some um, similarities and some similar experiences we've had. Now, I, I've never had to go around the, the state like he and Senator Berger did and others uh, to flip the uh, the majority and then 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 be like the dog that caught the bus when you've got that big deficit and you, you're mm-hmm. like, oh, great, we won. This is winning? Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to make all these cuts. $2 billion shortfall. <laughs> I'm not sure I wanted to win. <laughs> you know, so the, those, those guys uh, dug the well that we all drink out of uh, today and uh, – they, they certainly uh, took a lot of arrows in the process and, and had to uh, deal with some bumps. Well, Senator Tom Tillis, thank you for being on the podcast this week. Uh, we really were honored to be with you up on Capitol Hill recording. Tweet of the Week. The Tweet of the Week is sponsored by the North Carolina Pork Council, representing hog farmers around the state working hard to do agriculture better. Today, hog farms are reducing their carbon footprint by covering lagoons, reducing emissions, and generating renewable natural gas. To learn more, visit ncpork.org. This week's Tweet of the Week is from Darren Gant. He's at Darren Gant on Twitter, or X, however you call it, but it's about the Carolina Panthers. He has a photograph of about looks like eight fans seated at the Panther Stadium, a sea of blue seats around them. It says, Ultimate fans, I have nothing but respect for these brave pioneers in Section 519. I will walk into a fire with these men and women. They will move a couch for you. They will change a tire on the side of the road. They aren't just involved. They're committed. Salute. 
Thank you, Darren, for the tweet of the week. Panther stink, Senator. I think that's something all of NC Poll can agree on. They finally get a win this week, but in front of the smallest group of fans, you, there are more blue seats than anything. Don't, don't be so critical. That was very <laughs> meaningful to those 30 fans that were there for that game. Do you, do you follow sports? I, I do. I, I do. Used to uh, much more closely, uh, mostly college sports. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was one of those guys that would let it ruin my entire weekend <laughs> if my chosen team lost. And then uh, somewhere along the, the way, I flipped the switch and decided I wasn't going to let an 18-year-old ruin my weekend. Good I didn't have you. enough of them. Good so. for you. So let's talk about Christmas. Uh, we're recording again on Thursday before Christmas. We're about to go into the holidays. By the way, we're not going to have a podcast the Friday before New Year's. We're going to take the week off. We hope everyone does. But uh, in the interview with Senator Tillis, he talked about Christmas presents uh, that he got as a kid. When, you, when you're poor, you tend to get things like clothes and toothbrushes, things like that. Underwear, you know, deodorant. Right. <laughs> it's a rent. Got some rent one year. <laughs> right. uh, can you mind reflecting on your Christmases growing up and maybe even some traditions that you and your family have now? Yeah, you know, I had a, a single mom. I've got two older brothers. Um, so we, we, we'd go get our stuff off layaway at Belk Tyler's, as we called it, in eastern North Carolina. Explain to our younger listeners what layaway is, <laughs> yeah. because I don't think they have a clue what layaway is. Yeah, so layaway was before people bought a lot on time, as the older generation called it, or on credit. And you could take cash into um, the local department store, and let's say that you, you bought, you know, $100 worth of clothes, you could put down uh, $25 and they would literally stack your stuff up and lay it away back behind the counter or, you know, in the back room with your name on it. Uh-huh. And you could come make payments. And when you finished making your payments, then you take your new clothes home and, uh, you know, make sure that you don't wear them to play in the yard. They were yeah. only for school or church or whatever it was. We did a lot of that as a kid. My mom, you know, did everything she could for us. We, we have some traditions in our family. Like when we started off with the kids, I've got, I've got three kids. I tried to sell it as, you know, I was really uh, thinking more about tradition. And I said, you know, let's, let's limit them to three gifts, right? They get all these presents from their <laughs> grandma and grandpa. Really, I was being a little cheap and wanted to save money. We didn't have a lot of money. And I was like, three is plenty. You know, they play with the boxes anyway, not the toys you know, when they were little. Um, but we, I got away with that for a few years and then, uh, you know, Got away from it, like most parents do. I always knew exactly what kind of parent I was going to be mm-hmm. until I actually had kids. <laughs> you know, right. had to deal with it. And it's not that easy. So my my wife does some fun things with the kids. Like they still, my my kids today are uh, about to be twenty three, twenty two, and I have an eighteen year old. They still build a gingerbread house on the the twenty third, okay. the night before my daughter's birthday. My daughter's oldest daughter is born on Christmas Eve. And they, they still build and decorate these gingerbread houses, and then they they have a contest. They judge them, and, you know, we take pictures of them. Okay. That they, they still do that, been, been doing it forever. And, uh, you know, we put out milk and cookies for Santa Claus, and he, okay. he eats them every year. <laughs> and uh, on Christmas morning, we eat something we call Santa breakfast, and okay. it's a, like a sausage and egg casserole. But... Uh, my kids would mutiny if we didn't do these things, okay. you know, these traditions that we have. They've uh, they've come to enjoy them. We did the Christmas Eve uh, service um, every year uh, until COVID, you know, and then we, we had an interruption and then some changes at the church, and now we, we spend it with family there at the house. Yeah. You're How not- about you? Anything, I mean, anything fun? Anything neat? Yeah. I know you're a little weird. You probably got a good story. <laughs> <laughs> I, like you, I remember the layaway. I've told you this before off mic, but driving to Kinston to see lights at night, Christmas lights, was one of the most it was uh, such a great experience. Buddy K-Town was happening back in the day. <laughs> we we had the first mall east of Interstate 95. We had a mall in Kinston before there was one in Wilmington. I remember going to the Vernon Mall, and then I remember the Burger King across the street from the Vernon Mall. Now, we had a Tasty Freeze that I would pay $50 to eat at right now if we had a Tasty mm-hmm. Freeze. But back then, I saw a Burger King, and I 
connected the commercial I was seeing on TV to that Burger King. I was like, I want to go get a Whopper Junior. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was the best thing. And get a crown. You had to get that yeah, crown. Yeah, crown as well. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Yeah. yeah Tasty Freeze, they just gave you that that little paper cap. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> <laughs> and asked you to come work. Yeah, yeah I, I miss the simplicity of it. Do you remember uh, when Christmas specials would come on? Oh, yeah. You were like, when's Frosty come on? When's Rudolph come on? That's right. And you would crowd around that TV on Tuesday at 8 o'clock. Now you just can stream it. Yeah. And it's fun to be able to watch Christmas Vacation 50 times. (laughs) But I do miss like that appointment TV where you're just, you're putting on your underoos and you're watching, you know, Santa Claus coming to town. Those classic um, TV um, shows that are just truly just Christmas shows, Christmas movies, you know, and, and you mentioned Rudolph. That was that was such a big one, man. Frosty the Snowman, uh, Die Hard. You know, those were all just great, great yeah. Christmas movies. Great. You posted last year, maybe two years ago, something that stung me a little bit. Um, you took a photograph of a volunteer fire station with Christmas lights around the edge yeah. of it. And you said something like Christmas in Eastern North Carolina, nothing more beautiful. Yeah. And the simplicity, the simplicity of it is, simplicity. What, is what got me yeah. because you would see that volunteer fire station with lights on. Yeah. That, that was in uh, Pungo. Okay. North Carolina. Um, just that little simple strand of colored lights. That's all it was. Just one strand wasn't extravagant, right. but you know, it's that simple beauty that you think about when you're out there and when you, you live in these hectic worlds that we live in now and you have a moment to, uh, to clear your head and you, you see something like that. I think it's easy to be reflective and it's a great time of year to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Take a deep breath, clear your, clear your mind, clear your head and just take a moment to be thankful. Well, Senator Perry, I've enjoyed having you as my guest host this week. I appreciate you filling in for Sky. Well, I, I'm sorry I have to be here. I'm, I'm glad to, uh, to help out, but I, I certainly wish her the best on her trip and, and with her friends and our friends and, and hope, hope things go well. Uh, if I do have to come back, I'm going to request that she also get someone to stand in for you because the ratings are going to go way down. Just, you know, the two of us on here. we got to have someone interesting. Yeah, it's true. Maybe you and John Bell can pair up. That'd be a good one. He leads the way. Well, Merry Christmas, Senator. Happy New Year to you and your family. Thank you. Merry Christmas to you. And we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to all of our listeners. We appreciate you listening to the Do Politics Better podcast. We're looking forward to the 2024 NC Poll year. We're going to have a new podcast that first week in January. We hope you stay safe, get some rest, and always remember to do politics better.